welcome to the Alternative to Rehab podcast with your host, Dave Cooper. So here we are in the next section of this reading of the book, I'm a Christian, so why am I still dot, dot, dot. And the aim of the book is to help Christians and frankly anyone who's interested to overcome their addictions, their dependencies, anything really in their life that they're doing that they've decided they don't want to do. And we're reading from the book, I always produce this little caveat to say the finished published book may not actually have exactly these words, it's still being edited, but I'm reading from the version that we have uh, just prior to publishing. And today we're going to look at a section called How Does Behaviour Change? And so briefly, I'm going to talk a little bit about a therapy technique, um, and then we're going to go back into biblical stuff. Now, I do this a lot in my teaching. I I flip from what we might call the therapy or the neuroscience world, uh, and then across to the biblical world. And essentially what I'm doing is I'm showing how science is actually catching up with the Bible. So let's uh, read from How Does Behaviour Change, and then I'll speak to what I've read. I found it useful to explain it from back to front like this. Effective action is ultimately what you want, a change in behaviour. But like so many things, our preferred outcome and our path towards it need to be two different things. Simply trying to force yourself to change behaviour that has been trained into you for years will not work. It will simply lead to the trap of success and failure. So. Effective behaviour is produced when we are not in conflict with ourselves. Part of this inner harmony is produced when you're in line with reality, or we could call it acceptance. But we can only accept what we are aware of. So the practice of changing behaviour starts when you raise awareness around your thoughts and feelings, then practice acceptance in the true sense of the word. Finally, try to allow the behaviour to emerge naturally from the level of acceptance that you've managed. So develop the following practice. Number one, when you're feeling something is wrong, take a moment to check out what it is that you're feeling and thinking. Number two, accept at the deepest level you are able that whatever you've become aware of is real. Notice that we said that, you know, we said it's real. We didn't say that it's correct or that you like it or anything like that. We're just accepting the reality of the situation. And three, follow the course of action that emerges as a response from this acceptance. Now, I'll I return to that process, which I call AAA or say R, um, you know, awareness acceptance action. Uh, I'll, I'll return to it again later in the book. Uh, because it is our basic growth process. But for now, we'll move on. So the brain takes over when it perceives a threat to be present. Remember, this is always done in an attempt to help you. However, your brain defines help as survival. So, essentially, if you are still breathing at the end of the day, your brain is quite happy with the job that it's done even if you have been placed in a desperate situation as a result of its strategies. 
and that desperate situation could emerge tomorrow or next week. Your brain doesn't care, it only cares about now. Remember, there's no timeline. I help my clients to recognize their parts by these three things. Now I mentioned previously in the section on Luke 15, when we looked at the prodigal's parts thinking, expect your parts to be one, naive, two, radical, and three, immediate. Does this sound like the disciples' behaviour to you, right? Basically, they often think like children. Most traumatic experiences take place in childhood. Because, generally speaking, we can, ex we can escape better when we get older. And the younger the child, the easier they are to traumatise for all kinds of uh, psychological reasons. The brain isn't fully formed, they, their experience of the world isn't very wide, they don't really have uh, much maturity and so the the sense of what can happen is far broader than you would have as an adult. As an adult you know very well the limitations of things and so you know you tend to be harder to traumatize it. You, you can traumatize an adult it's just much harder to do. So most of your parts will be quite young and this is why it's useful to look for these three factors in your triggered moments. So let's go through them briefly. Immediate. What this means is it, that your parts are all about now. They, they won't care about tomorrow morning. Never mind, you know, next week or next month. They could be putting you on a disastrous path over time, but it helps right now. And that's what they do. Radical. If a child learns that an adult is not to be trusted, then they'll probably stop trusting all adults. Now that is a radical solution, okay? But it keeps, it's, it's like the brain's way of saying, well, I know this will be safe, right? Because that adult isn't to be trusted, so none of these may, but they all might turn out to not be trusted, so therefore I'm shutting that down. And so, immediate followed by radical. Look for radical strategies. And thirdly, naive. Your parts will not exhibit anything approaching wisdom. Okay? It's all about survival. Uh, and we use these two words, you know, when we talk about this. We say, um, we talk about survival and flourishing as two ideas in life. And we say that if you don't survive, you can't flourish, right? So survival comes first. And your brain is all about survival. It really doesn't care about flourishing. In fact, it will actively prevent you from going ahead in a career or um, you know, making progress if it feels that that's a threatening way to go. So, you know, when I teach on this stuff, I, I, I say to people, look, your brain doesn't care about other people. But I also give them a list and I say, your brain also doesn't care about your family, doesn't care about your money, doesn't care about your career, doesn't care about next week. You know, in fact, it's much easier to say what it does care about what it cares about is you and keeping you safe. And that's it. Okay, so this part of the brain, immediate, radical, naive. When you're looking at your triggered state, look for strategies that include these three ideas. So this whole thing relates to trauma and what we've learned about trauma in recent years. One of the main things being that human beings are complex things. 
I often say to my clients uh, that when we say I, when we use this personal pronoun, we are using a complex thing. The fact is that as a human being, you have many parts. These parts are natural and are not part of a mental condition, but actually part of the human condition. Now, years ago, I have to be honest, I couldn't have written these words without you thinking that you were suffering from some kind of mental condition. So, you know, you might think, oh, is that multiple personality disorder? Is it dissociative, you know, disorder? All of that stuff we've got from the medical model. All that idea that, uh, you know, people went, you know, they say, oh, talking to yourself is the first sign of, you know, whatever. All of that stuff has been blown out of the water by neuroscience, which teaches us now that this is perfectly normal. And we have to take into account the complexity of our uh, construction. And of course, this is the point that the Bible's been making for thousands of years. You have within you both the flesh and the spirit. So very often over the last decade, for instance, I've had a new client sit on my couch and, and, and come into therapy and say, oh, I'm going crazy. And I, I, I say, well, what's going on? They say, oh, I'm depressed. Or they say, oh, I'm anxious. Or wh whatever they say like that. And I explain to them, um, after hearing more about their life and their situation, that they're certainly not going crazy, but rather are having a sane reaction to an insane situation. In other words, the way that they feel is a result of things working well, not things being broken. And that's the point. Because it's the medical model and the way that we're saturated as a culture in that model that has us thinking any discomfort, anything going wrong, anything troubling us, anything upsetting us, anything depressing us, anything making us anxious, that means there's something wrong with me. Because I'm supposed to be having this fantastic life, right? Okay. Well, no, it doesn't mean that. What it means is that your brain is giving you a message. And if you can interpret that message and deal with it properly, then it becomes a good thing. Right? And this is what the Bible says. That all things work together for good to those that believe. So, sometimes, I, you know, it's about the way that they're reacting to something that makes them think that, that they're crazy. Sometimes it's the way that they are contradicting themselves in their opinions or their behavior. So, this is a typical thing that I would do. I often ask them what football team they support. This is my, my own simple way of helping them understand the complexity of a human being. So once they tell me which team they support, I tell them I support a different team. And then I ask this question, does this seem crazy? Well, of course it does. There are simply two opinions and two people in the same room. The problem and the confusion arises when the two opinions are seen to come from one source. When both those opinions come from one person, our common sense tells us there's something really weirdly wrong here. But there isn't. It's because you think of yourself as one thing that causes this problem. But our imagination actually works separately, or you could say autonomously, from our mind. Now we all know this, right? And, and there would be no architecture or poetry 
no music or literature, if everything had to be worked out consciously, you know, one step at a time. We've all had, you know, eureka moments, haven't we, when our imagination has delivered a solution that we certainly didn't work out consciously. This is how it is with our human experience. So how does this neuroscience discovery relate to the Bible and this idea of discipling? Well, we come to a new section now called Jesus and his disciples. And I first quote Romans 1 verse 20. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Now I quote that because I think it really helps me to understand that we can learn about God not just from his word, not just from Jesus, but we can learn from God through his design. You know, the Bible does this a lot when it talks about, you know, look at the ant, or Jesus says, look at the birds, or, you know, talk about the lily, and, you know, talk about, you know, the seasons and stuff like this. These are all parts of God's design. And when we see that design, what Paul is telling us here is that we then see God. And I, I really want to use that idea because that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at what Jesus did as part of the design, and then we're going to use it as a method. Okay, so this is Jesus and his disciples. Now, Jesus had many disciples, not just 12. We've all heard about them in sermons, and we've read about them. Jesus taught them over a period of about, or just over, three years. I'm going to invite you to take a new look at this process not just as ministry work, but as a, a wonderful example of how to view and manage ourselves. Not to replace any of the teaching or facts you already know, and certainly not to replace you know, the idea of discipling, which is just a wonderful thing, but to add to your understanding by seeing their lives and experiences with Jesus as a model for your own growth and development your journey into recovery or restoration. Another section called Following the Bible. Now, we all try to follow the Bible, its teachings, its truth, and its author. Psalm 3 says that we should not lean on our own understanding. As well as living by the Bible's instruction, we can also live by using God's design and God's ways. It's Romans 1.20, though, that says that we see his design all around us in the way he structures things, like the seasons and things like resting on the seventh day, which is actually a principle built into the land and used by farmers as they leave their fields fallow to allow them to regain their nutrients before being planted again. So this principle is actually well known and stretches all the way from Solomon, saying that there's a season for everything in Ecclesiastes. All the way to Proverbs 6, where we're told not to be a lazy bones, but to become wise and learn from the ant. Jesus tells us to consider the lily and to watch the birds. The way the universe has been designed shows us God's power and creativity. His design also offers us directions on how to live. 
So we're actually following a well-trodden and God-inspired route if we can think of the methods Jesus used with the disciples not only as examples of leadership and inspiration for our ministry with others, but also as a model for how we should work with our inner self or inner parts. By using Jesus' relationship with the disciples as a model for our own individual growth, we have a proven way of utilising the truth of God's word to further God's kingdom through the development of our own recovery. Now, another section called From Conflict to Harmony. So, what would this mean, actually? Ask yourself this. What did Jesus do? What did he actually do? We're going to boil it right down to the grave in that, right? He took a ragtag group of diverse individuals who all had different agendas, and he turned them into a team that was completely unified in their commitment and their purpose. And he did this through his patience, his teaching, disciplining, and ultimately, his sacrifice. He committed to them, and they became willing to die for him. Notice that none of the disciples had anything like the wisdom of the Lord. Uh, they all seemed more immature, and they certainly didn't understand the big picture. There were times when they acted in a way that frustrated Jesus, such as in Mark 7, verse 18. Times when he had to reverse their actions, such as in John 18, 11. And a lot of times where they seemed to disagree with the way that he wanted to go, such as in Matthew 16, verse 22. This incredible experience and teaching concluded with the disciples finally acknowledging who Jesus was following his death and resurrection. As they acknowledged him as their Lord and Saviour, they all became transformed and joined together in complete unity. Gone was the argumentative, such as in Luke 9, verse 46. Gone was the lack of confidence, such as in Luke 18, verse 26. Gone was the fear, such as in Matthew 8, verse 27. And gone was the doubting, such as in John 20, verse 25. Also gone was the ego, such as in Matthew 20, verse 21. They were in harmony, and they were one. In acknowledging Jesus and seeing him as the only way forwards, they lost all fear. They became unified and motivated to do the work of the kingdom. Now, there are many accounts of how this unity played out in their lives, some more reliable than others, but there is no greater evidence of this unity than their deaths. Because they knew the truth and could not deny it, they were all martyred, except John, who was made immune from the poison that was forced upon him. He lived the life of a martyr on the island of Patmos. But this is how we believe they all died, and there's, there's pretty good historic uh, evidence for this, even though a lot of it isn't in the Bible itself. Um, the first one is because we know that James died by the sword, ordered by Herod, and that's in Acts 12, verse 2. But we also believe that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome, that Andrew was hanged from an olive tree in Patria in Acacia, 
Thomas, known as Doubting Thomas, was thrust through with pine spears, according to history. Philip was tortured and crucified by angry Jews in Phrygia. Matthew was beheaded at Navdavar. Nathaniel was flayed and crucified. James, the lesser, was thrown from the top of the temple in Jerusalem. Simon the Zealot was crucified by the governor in Syria. Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, was beaten to death by pagan priests in Mesopotamia. Matthias, who, was re- who actually replaced Judas Iscariot, was stoned whilst hanging from a cross in Ethiopia. John was not martyred, but exiled to Patmos, although some reports say he was thrown into boiling oil. And Paul the Apostle, of course, was beheaded in Rome. Now, what produced this amazing level of discipline and commitment an acceptance of Jesus as their Lord and Master, total trust in him? What was it that made that happen? Many things, of course, but it all started with receiving forgiveness. So we have a new section then called No Condemnation. The disciples had been living under the law, as was everyone else, as the world still is. Since the time of Moses, they had been condemned by their sin and lived with the weight of this fact 24-7. Jesus showed them a different way. Now that he was here, they would be living by faith and not under the law, that they were forgiven. Now this is as mind-blowing today as it must have been then. In one fell swoop, Jesus removed the power of the Pharisees, had over the people, and offered everyone eternal life. This was no small thing, and is in fact the key that turns the lock, both in discipleship and in your own restoration. In John 8, we learn about the woman caught in the act of adultery, and the way the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus by quoting Moses and the law. Jesus turned the tables on them and showed them the trap they were in. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, he said, and they all walked away. Finally, he said to the woman that he did not condemn her, but told her to leave her life of sin. In Luke Luke 7, Jesus says directly to the woman who anoints him with oil, your sins are forgiven, and the guests are deeply shocked. In verse 49, we read that the other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? I believe that this picture of forgiveness, discipling and harmony is at the very heart of recovery and restoration and should be your aim in developing your recovery through your inner life. As well as looking at how the disciples died, how they lived is also fascinating in the context of this inner discipling idea. When they were first brought into the team, They were literally all over the place, variously squabbling and arguing amongst themselves, fighting with others, asking to be given pride of place next to Jesus, as well as denying Christ and deserting him. When Christ died and rose again, they became totally unified and of one purpose. They actually began their real job in life, the one intended for them by God. And I think this is a fascinating idea. You see, when Jesus walked past the fishing boat, 
Peter, James and John, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, they thought they were fishermen, but he said, I'm going to give you your real job. And I think this is a real clue in the way we work with parts. You see, they're all doing an artificial job and we're going to give them their real job back. So let me ask you now, as a way of helping you track your progress, how close are you to forgiving yourself for the things you have done, for the way you have been? Or are you still hating those parts of you that have had you acting out this way? If you want to learn a better way, you have to stop fighting yourself. Inner conflict inhibits learning, and without learning, there can be no progress. So you will return to the disciples and their experience later as part of your practice. But before we get to the practice section, there is one more thing I want to challenge you with. It's the true nature of sin. Okay, so I think we'll stop there. Um, that is a good section of the book that we've read there. And um, I think the idea uh, of talking to that, I won't talk much, but I will say a few things. Um, we'll look at sin in the next section. I, I'm, I'm aware that I've introduced this kind of pattern of awareness, acceptance and action as a basic growth process. Okay, so I do want to speak to that a little bit. You can find it on the website and we go into it in more detail, but I will just say a few things about it. So, um, again, looking at it uh, backwards, if you like, we have awareness, acceptance, action. So we start with action and we say that's what we want. That's our outcome. Okay, you want to change the way you behave. You want to do things differently. You want to start doing something you should have been doing, and you want to stop doing something you shouldn't have been doing. Right, so how do we produce effective action? Well, the wrong way to do it is to simply demand it of ourselves, right? Because then you just set up inner conflict, right? That would be like Jesus uh, literally fighting the disciples, you know, and, you know, maybe chaining them up and whatever. But that's not what he did. He loved them, right? He worked with them. He saw the flaws. Of course he did. In fact, he called them evil to their face. If you look in Matthew 7, 11, you'll see that. But he loved them. Now, we produce effective action then by a different route. So let's step back and say, what produces effective action? Well, it's lining yourself up with reality. What is actually real here? And that brings in acceptance, which is the second step, right? So, in other words, we can't take effective action on something until we've actually accepted it. Now, you can show this, you know, you can prove this to yourself if, <clears throat> as you practice it. Try to do something effective about something without fully accepting that it's actually happened. It's almost impossible, right? In fact, that is one of the reasons <clears throat> why ineffective action is being produced all the time. It's because we try and change something without fully accepting it. What, what are we doing? We're either trying to hide it, deny it, rub it out, appear to be something else. You know, we're not really accepting that it's real. We're saying, well, if I can just do something like this about it, then maybe it didn't really happen. Maybe it's not really true. So working from a position of acceptance is vital. 
And it's this second step that's usually the one that's missed out. We usually flip from awareness straight across to action. You know, this is the kind of knee-jerk reaction. You know, I feel like this, I do that. I feel like this, I do that. I feel like this, I do that. That is the knee-jerk reaction. What we're doing is we're putting this vital step of acceptance in between. If we can do it, you know, it's practice. It takes practice. So what does acceptance mean? It's not the same as knowledge. Right? Knowledge comes in the first step. By raising awareness, you're raising your knowledge. You're, you've got information. You're becoming more aware. But then you have to do something with it. And if we think about knowledge or awareness as in the mental and emotional uh, realm, in other words, what, what are you raising awareness of? You're raising awareness of how you feel and what you're thinking. And if we say action is in the practical or pragmatic realm, it's behaviour, it's what you do, it's the concrete stuff. Then in the middle is this acceptance. And acceptance is in the spiritual realm. And that's why it's so vital. It's because we, we need to produce better behaviour. We do that uh, by accepting reality. And we can only accept what we've become aware of. So that's why you see we, we, we explain it backwards. We start by raising awareness. And that is a brave step. Because a lot of what you'll have been doing um, to get yourself in trouble is you will have been um, dulling your awareness. You'll have been doing exactly the opposite to what I'm saying. Uh, you know, this can be done with drugs, it can be done with alcohol, it can be done with social media, it can be done with television, it can be done with chasing relationships or uh, sexual uh, experience. All kinds of ways it can be done with gambling. There's all kinds of ways that we can dull our experience, you know, to, to change the way we feel. It, so it's a courageous step to say, I'm going to raise awareness. I'm going to say to myself, what is it that I'm thinking and feeling right now? And why, why would you do that? Why, you know, why would you follow these instructions? Because we're going to do something with it. And what we're going to do with it is accept. Now, what is the difference then? If it's not just knowledge, what is acceptance? It's almost a difficult thing to describe because it's in the spiritual realm. It's not anything practical. But when we raise awareness, we can hate it. You know, you can, you can raise awareness that says, I've just behaved selfishly, right? And you, you immediately go into this kind of conflicted position, right? When you accept that it's real, you first of all step away from judgment, and you, you're not judging yourself because of it. And you're not sort of saying that, you know, this is horrible and I've got to change it. You're basically saying, this is real. Now... You're also not doing a few other things which you need to look at. Because acceptance gets a terrible press these days. It's generally, you know, considered to be some kind of doormat experience, you know. People just wiping their feet on you. Oh, I suppose I'll just have to accept it. Meaning, you know, I I've just been done here, right? But that's not the original meaning and that's not the best meaning. Acceptance is actually wonderful stuff. If you use it right. And when we accept something, we are not saying, right? I'm going to talk about what we're not saying. We're not saying that 
we agree with it, we're not saying that it's correct, and we're not saying that it's permanent. We're simply saying that it's real. Okay? So whatever it is that your awareness has just delivered to you, by accepting it, you're simply saying that is really what happened. You're, you're, you're certainly not, and this is where we make the mistake with acceptance, you know, you're not saying it's, it's correct. We're not saying that at all. And we're definitely not saying it's permanent because some people are, f are frightened to accept something because they think it'll, it'll just be there forever. It won't. In fact, accepting it uh, rather more ensures that you're going to overcome it. So, what are we asking ourselves to do? It's a three-step process, and it takes practice. But essentially, what you're doing is raising awareness, deepening acceptance, and producing action. So, what I'm saying is this, that when you go through this process as well as you can, and, and at the deepest level you can, line up with reality, then the behavior is automatically produced. You don't have to tell yourself what to do. You will naturally do a better thing. The, the ineffective action is produced by not accepting something. That's when we try and fix something. Or, you know, hide it or pretend it's not true or whatever, whatever. Only when we accept something do we produce effective behaviour. So I hope that's helped you to um, understand that a little bit more. There are, there are other um, podcasts and, and pieces written on that that uh, you, can, you can study. So, um, where are we going then with this? Well, we're saying, we're, we're, we're making the first foray into the idea that we're going to use as our main uh, thesis of the book, which is that we're going to take the idea of discipling, which is what Jesus did, and we're going to take that whole idea and reproduce it internally. What we're saying is that within you, as a complex human being, you have both Jesus and the disciples, internally. And that this is where you should start. You know, it was years ago that we were getting some teaching from a pastor who came across from Peru, where he was in, you know, this huge church that uh, God had built with him in, in, um, in Peru. And he was teaching us one night, and he said something. Now, this is going back about 20 years, but I, I, honestly, I've never forgotten it. He said, if you want to conquer a city, you must first conquer yourself. And I've never forgotten that. And I think this is very, uh, I think this is of the Lord, you know. Basically, um, what, I, what I'm saying is that the quality of everything you produce is contingent on the quality of your state. Right? And the Bible puts it this way. It says, as a man thinks, so is he. Right? And if you listen to Jesus' teaching, he's basically always um, pointing us towards the internal. You know, he's, uh, if you look at his teaching, you can see it in all the teaching. In fact, I say to people that... It's an interesting exercise to actually read the New Testament as if it is internal, as if it's all talking about what's going on inside you. 
and and that way you can sort of see the the you know the the Old Testament as external, because all about battles and what God wanted people to actually do, and then the New Testament comes along, this new covenant, and you can start to read that as internal, and it's surprising what it brings up. It's surprising how it uh, makes perfect sense, and we certainly got to use that in this book. We're going to use the idea of discipling. And we're going to call it inner discipling. We're going to accept that we have parts and that our brain works this way, that it's perfectly normal. It's not an evil spirit. It's not a mental illness. It's just normal human condition. And we're going to accept that. And then we're going to work with our parts exactly the same. And this is where the method Exactly the same way as Jesus did. And there it is. There's the method, right? Hiding in plain sight, as I say, in the New Testament. Right? If we will do what Jesus did, you know, we can't really have a better teacher, right? So that's the first kind of foray into this idea of how do we follow the Bible and how do we uh, take on board um, the idea of... um, discipling our inner parts. Will we and can we produce and reproduce the same result that Jesus did? Can we produce this incredible, committed, unified team? Well, I have to tell you, I see it every day in my working life. I see people leaving this conflicted, um, you, you know, difficult experience and producing what we call a harmonized self where you're actually working with your own team and instead of hating these parts of you you start to welcome them and say thank you for your sacrifice thank you for helping me so much to get through uh, this difficult time and now i want you to trust me Mm. accept me If we think about what Jesus did, as I said, boiling it right down to the gravy, I would boil it right down to this. He got 12 people to trust who he actually was. That's what it all boils down to. Because until they trusted him to be who he actually said he was, they they would never have done what they needed to do. And we're all Christians today because of what they did. So... The idea of trust is huge here. You see, when you're in your normal state, when you're in your calm, uh, productive state, and you can think of that now, you can think about, um, mm, when does that happen with me? Or it happens at these times, or at this time of day, or with this, this relationship, or at this job. When you're in your best state, what's effectively happening there is that your brain is trusting you to run your life. So there's no parts. They're all sitting back watching you run your life. And they're all fine with that, right? Because they don't see any threat. Okay. So that's what we're trying to produce more of, right? Because as soon as your brain sees a threat, that's when it takes over. And that's when the disciples took over, when they saw a threat to Jesus or when they saw a threat to the kingdom. Now, what you're saying and what this method produces 
is that they will trust you more. Now, the more they trust you, it's logical, isn't it, to understand that the more that they trust you, the more you're, you're going to spend time in your authentic state. And the more time you spend in your authentic state, the more productive you're going to be. Because you're going to be making the decisions, right? So, that's what we're after. And I hope I've made that clear today. Sorry if it went on a bit too long. Be blessed for taking the time to listen to this. I want to thank everybody who's supported this podcast. Uh, we've just gone over 10,000 downloads. It's, it's quite a landmark. And I want to thank everyone who's supported it. And uh, yeah, we'll, do, we'll keep doing more of this as long as you keep downloading it and listening to it. And the book will be out soon. So again, be blessed. Until next time, bye for now.